Good morning and welcome to Christ the King. And this morning I did a little field research for this morning. I went to CVS right down the road to the Hallmark section in CVS, to the sympathy section, and then even more specifically, I went to the Christian sympathy section. I wanted to see the type of comfort or the condolences that we offer to one another in times of trouble. And I found pretty much two basic themes that the majority of condolence cards focus on. Number one theme was that God is with us in our sorrows, in your troubles. And that's certainly a very true, it's a very biblical idea uh, that God is close to the brokenhearted, that he counts the tears of of the faithful. He stoops to encourage the brokenhearted. It's a very common theme and a very appropriate and a very comforting theme. That's theme number one if you were to go to that section of CVS. Theme number two. You'll find the theme that God works all things for good. So somehow the sorrow is going to be redeemed or turned around. One card uh, took a little artistic license and described life as a, a, a tapestry. And uh, God as the weaver. And there were some dark threads, and those dark threads represented hard times, and there were light threads, and those light threads represented good times. And uh, the combination of the two made the final product all the more beautiful. And that as well is true. The Bible certainly affirms that. You may be familiar with the Old Testament character Joseph. He had more than his fair share of dark threads and light threads. He was sold into slavery, abandoned, and at the end of his life, he addressed uh, some of the perpetrators against him and said, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. Or perhaps the Apostle Paul, who writes in the book of Romans, Uh, that all things work to the good for those who love God. So again, a very biblical theme, a very true theme, and a very comforting theme. However, there's one theme that I found uh, noticeably absent, and actually absent from my, what I, uh, the sources for comfort for me as well. It's kind of a low-hanging fruit, uh, a source of comfort for the Christian faith or through the Christian faith, yet it's surprisingly absent in those Hallmark cards, and a little bit absent in my life as well, and that is the assurance that trouble doesn't last forever. The assurance of an eternal home that Jesus will prepare for us and that Jesus will take us to. I believe that this assurance, this assurance of our heavenly, of our eternal home, is the greatest source of comfort for you and me. Turn with me to the the gospel reading from John. John chapter 13 is where the passage begins. Verse 36, now the disciples are troubled. They're troubled for two main reasons. Number one, they've been told of Jesus' imminent departure. And so they're troubled by this. Jesus says, I'm going. Where I am going, you may not come. So they're troubled. They're troubled by loss, or at least the possibility, the potential of loss. They're troubled also by their own frailty. Peter says, Jesus, I'll go with you even to the very end. To which Jesus says to Peter, you don't even know your own heart. By the time a rooster crows three times, you'll have denied me 
by the time the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. The anticipation of loss and coming to grips with frailty, that is what troubled these disciples. There are two things that may trouble you and me. It strikes me that this month has had more than its fair share of troubles. I don't know about you, but I'm aware of two untimely deaths that have impacted many in this congregation. Uh, Jennifer, my wife, and I yesterday went to a funeral in which a father gave one of the most moving eulogies for their son. Certainly, we're all aware of the, the tragedy in Florida. So we are very familiar with trouble. Let's look at what Jesus says. If he were to write a note of condolence, what would he write to you and me? What would he say to us? What comfort would he give to you and me, to the troubled souls? Chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled, for in my Father's house are many, many rooms. My Father's house, that's not so much a physical place. I don't think we're to envision a big dwelling, a physical building. We're not helped by the translation that you may know of in my Father's mansion. Uh, I don't think it's supposed to, we're supposed to think of a, you know, an actual physical structure, but instead that dimension uh, where God dwells, a place where we cannot travel to, a place we cannot see with our own sights, but God's dwelling place, his heavenly dwelling place. This is a place where, and note the use of pronouns, very interesting, my father, I'm going to my father's house. That's important because contrary to popular piety, I don't think there's anywhere in the Bible that I am aware of that suggests that all of us, by virtue of our birth, are, are children of God. Now, that may come as surprising because we're taught to say from a very young age, our Father who art in heaven. And so it comes almost a second nature that we would refer to God as our Father. Friends, this would have been scandalous to the original hearers. It still is scandalous today to many, someone of the Islamic faith or someone who is very serious about the Jewish faith. Who are you to call God Father? Who am I to address God with such an intimate and familiar term? No, Christianity would assert that there's only one son of God, only one legitimate son, Jesus, and he is going to his father's house. So Jesus' first word of comfort to his troubled disciples is to assure them of the reality of heaven, the place where his, not yet our, his father dwells. And that in itself would not be very comforting if it were not for the second point, which is, I am going to prepare a place for you. That's verse 2. His second word of comfort is he's going to make a place for us. Now, are we to envision Jesus as assuming some housekeeping responsibilities and freshening up the sheets? No. His preparatory work is nothing less than his death his resurrection, in which, by which he bears the sins of the whole world and makes us fit for his Father's dwelling. 
It's very interesting. Note, again, the use of pronouns, my father, his house. That's what we find here. Flip to the very end of John's gospel and you find something very interesting. Jesus addresses another troubled soul by the name of Mary Magdalene. And this is after the resurrection. Uh, Jesus addresses her and, she, and he says, tell my disciples, go tell my brothers that I am going to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. That's in chapter 20, verse 17. By implication, my house and now your house. What's changed between this passage here and the passage that we are considering? Well, Jesus' preparatory work is done. He's been to the cross. The debt of sin has been canceled. His, by his resurrection, he has vindicated and forgiven us. Therefore, we are prepared to enter into God's house. So that is his second word of comfort for his disciples, that he is preparing you and me for heaven. He's going to prepare a place for us. That's his second word of comfort. The third word of assurance and comfort that he has is that he is coming back for us. Verse 3, I will come again. I will take you to myself. Jesus, who prepares us for heaven, is going to escort us there. He's going to ensure that we make it there safely. I stumbled upon this illustration. It, uh, maybe it'll be helpful for us. A little boy was swimming in a pond. His mom was watching from a window. And to the mom's horror, she saw an alligator winding its way into the water. Don't worry, it ends well. <laughs> she ran horrified to the dock. The boy swam to the dock. The alligator swam to the boy. And just as she reached her boy, the alligator reached her boy. And you can imagine a great tug of war began. Now the animal, of course, was stronger than mom. But mom was too passionate to let go. Now, of course, the boy survived. I wouldn't be telling you this uh, illustration if that were not the case. A reporter interviewed the boy and asked if he could see the boy's scars. And the boy pulled up his pants leg. And then with obvious pride, he said, look at my arms and well, as well. I have great scars on my arm because my mom wouldn't let me go. Now, I don't know if that's a true illustration or not, but it certainly makes a compelling point, doesn't it? That the swimming hole of life is filled with peril. And some of us may have scars from those missteps. Certainly Peter, in our story, had the scars from his betrayal. But Jesus did not let Peter go. Jesus does not let us go. He who is preparing a place for you is coming back for you. And if you have scars of a, of a regretful past, then you also have the scars of a tenacious Savior. So let me summarize. To his troubled disciples, Jesus offers this comfort. The comfort of an eternal reality 
unseen, beyond where we can travel, the place where his Father dwells, to his home. Jesus, secondly, comforts his troubled disciples by securing our heavenly destination, by preparing a place for us by his death and by his resurrection, so that we may too become children of God and welcomed in his Father's house. Finally, Jesus guarantees our eternal destination, and he will come back for us. He will bring us to where he is. I think it's a compelling thought that Jesus, who is our destination of eternity, is our forerunner who prepares the place for us and our escort who ensures our safe arrival. Our eternal, our heavenly salvation is our primary source of comfort for the troubled heart. We're in a sermon series entitled, Things We Must Not Give Up. It's a little play on the season of Lent. Many of us give up things for Lent. We're going to consider a few things we must not give up. And one of those things we must not give up is salvation, specifically this heavenly, this eternal, this otherworldly, this specifically religious view of salvation. I think it is Interestingly and surprisingly, all too easy to think of salvation in solely earthly terms, as if Jesus saves us means nothing more than uh, our well-being, and that by trusting in Jesus and following him, he provides for us a little bit of shock absorbers to take a few bumps out of the rocky road of life. And The church's mission can be summarized by nothing more than social ends or worse yet, political efforts. And all the church was here to do was to help humanity live a little better. And worse than being unoriginal, which that is, it's incredibly unfaithful. Because Christianity is primarily, fundamentally, a religion of salvation. And any faithful proclamation and any faithful practice of Christianity includes a crystal clear vision of our eternal home with him. Take that away, and you're not left with much that resembles Christianity. We must not give up salvation. It is the good part. I dare say it is the best part of our faith. Are you familiar with the book, uh, the movie, The Princess Bride? Great movie. It's actually based on an equally charming book. The author begins this story in a, very creatively. He tells uh, the story of his father reading him a book as a sick young boy, a book that he fell in love with, a book called The Princess Bride. And he searches for his entire adult life to come across that same copy. He can't find it. It's out of print. No one's reading Morgan Stern's classic tale of true love and high adventure, A Princess Bride. He finally finds it only to discover that it is a winding historical narrative of this Eastern European city called Florin. And he realized that his father, when he was sick, his father had read to him the good parts version. And so that's what he tells you and me, the reader. I'm going to tell you the story, and this is how chapter one concludes. I'm going to tell you the story of the princess bride, the good parts version. Make sure your version of Christianity includes the good parts. 
the version of Christianity that assures you and me that troubles do not last, that death is not the final answer. The good part version that assures us that Jesus has prepared a place for you and that he will come again and bring you to where he is, to that place where there are no more tears. Maybe you know the name Joni Erickson Tata. She is someone who held on to the good parts version. She was paralyzed at a young age, no more than 17, in a diving accident. She went on to live a full and productive life. She wrote this. Somewhere in my broken and paralyzed body is the seed of what I will become. The paralysis makes what I am to be all the more grand when you contrast atrophied and useless legs against the splendor of the legs I will have when Jesus brings me home. When we face trouble, trouble of any kind, the best part, the most comforting part of our faith is not that Jesus is with you in your troubles, although he is. The best part, the most comforting part of our Christian faith is that not that Jesus will somehow redeem your troubles, although he will. The best part of our faith, the most comforting part of our faith, is that they don't last. And one day Jesus will take us to himself and to his Father's house, to the place that he has prepared for us, where sin is wiped away, and the pain of loss will be reversed, as the dead in Christ will rise again, our old, worn-out bodies will be reborn. Our eternal salvation is our primary source of comfort for the troubled heart. So we must not give up salvation. Let me conclude by reading the by way of reflection and meditation. This is from the offertory that we'll hear. The author writes, Be still, my soul. The hour is hastening on when we shall be forever with the Lord. When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow forgot, love's purest joy restored. Be still, my soul, when change and tears are past. All safe and blessed, we shall meet at last.